there. I am Dr. Amy King, otherwise known as Dr. Amy. And on this podcast, it is called The Most Important Medicine. If you don't know me, I'm a licensed psychologist, trainer, and consultant, and we're here to discuss how talking about trauma and providing a space for patients and providers to share their experiences is how we transform medicine. I work with physicians and healthcare organizations on the daily, and every time we begin these conversations, and I even hint at the discussion about trauma, I met with one of two things, either intense, compassionate curiosity and or a whole lot of skepticism. And that's what we're here for, to make understanding and discussing trauma accessible, and even more important, how to respond to trauma so that you feel more competent. Every time you join me, I want you to hear practical information and leave with tangible tools that you can use with patients today. So today I am so excited because I have my friend and special guest here today, Alfonso Ramirez. Alfonso holds a master's degree in counseling psychology from the University of Santa Monica, and he is certified in the neurosequential model of education and was a former sanctuary model trainer. Alfonso has provided consultation and training in education, healthcare, nonprofit, and governmental systems, and he is the owner of Trauma-Informed Consulting, LLC. He recently led a successful three-year Trauma-Informed Schools pilot program at Tigard High School. During the pilot, Tigard experienced a significant decrease in disciplinary referrals and a significant increase in four-year graduation rates. We will dive into this in the podcast today, Um, but what is really notable is that there were higher increases for students receiving special education services, experiencing economic hardship, and for students of color. As a result of this work, Tigard High School was nominated for Washington County Public Health Department's Partner of the Year Award in both 2018 and 2019. And Tigard High School's trauma-informed work was featured in the HBO show Problem Areas with Wyatt, how do you say that, Sinek? Sinek. Sinek mental health uh, problems. Alfonso has experience with social emotional learning, healthcare policy and equity, and he currently, and maybe most importantly, lives in Portland with his wife and two daughters. Um, So welcome, Alfonso. I'm so glad you're here. Thank you. I'm really excited to have this conversation with you today. Me too. Um, So that's kind of your formal intro. Anything else you would add about who you are or what you do? You, you know, I'm originally from Arizona, moved here about 10 years ago, um, and we thought we'd live in Portland just for a, few, a couple of years, but really it's been our home. Our kids have grown up here, and it's just amazing to be here and and to meet people like you here in Oregon. Yeah, and so um, for people that may be listening and not familiar, we're talking about Portland, Oregon, which is where Alfonso and I both live um, in areas around or surrounding, and we actually met at um, through Tiger Tualatin School District um, yeah. because we were we both had this synergy around trauma-informed trainings. Yeah, part of our strategy was really uh, to get parents involved, to educate parents around uh, trauma, ACEs, and resilience. More, most importantly, resilience and what they could do to help uh, bolster that with their um, kids. And I had seen you present, I think, to some uh, pediatricians. And I thought, wow, it would be great if we could get Amy to come talk to our parents. And it was really, uh, you know, I don't know if we shared the data with you, but probably one of our most successful um, events. I mean, every parent enjoyed it. And I think it was something like 95% of them would have recommended you to talk to other people. So I'm just really appreciative of you uh, coming and having that conversation with us. 
Well, and you know what I learned from working with that group as well? Um, you know, we started with, I can't remember our initial number. And every time we had another presentation, those numbers grew because people felt safe. They felt respected. They felt like they were in community. And that wasn't just because of information I was providing, but what you were doing doing in the schools, what the community was doing, what the teachers were doing. So I can't wait to talk more about that. Um, but let me back up. Um, so Alfonso is a really humble friend of mine, but he is brilliant when it comes to trauma-informed work and a, a really commitment to diversity and equity in the work that we do, whether it be in education or healthcare systems. So can we back up a little bit, Alfonso, and would you do me a favor and define trauma in your own words? Um, so for me, when I think of trauma, it's really um, sort of the effect. I, I kind of subscribe to the three E's that SAMHSA talks about. It's really the effect um, that that an event has had on somebody. Um, and it's, you, you know, again, really an experience. So I think of, of effect, experience, um, an event. or And, you know, the thing I will add to it, though, is it's, it's not just an individual experience, but it can be a collective experience held within a community. And I think sometimes that's left out. I, I 100% agree. Um, on this particular podcast, we're talking about trauma-informed medicine and trauma-informed work in healthcare organizations. What I just heard you say is really important, right? Because a physician or healthcare provider might look at something someone's gone through and think, well, that doesn't seem traumatic. But you said it is an effect that it has on the individual, their experience of the event, can you say a little bit more about that? Yeah, I think um, um, for some of us, um, for example, uh, maybe there's a there's a divorce that happens, mm -hmm. and uh, depending on the person, that could have a lifelong effect. Mm -hmm. And for others, it may be a year or two. Um, so I think it just really uh, depends on uh, a, a number of factors. Um, and trauma seems to be like that. The more uh, connections we have with people, the more we we sense um, belonging and, and that we matter with the people around us, it could really um, buffer the effects of whatever event, whether it's a hurricane, whether it's divorce, whether it's uh, some other um, some other traumatic impact. And you mentioned that and a trauma could be something that happens to an individual, right? Like a divorce or bullying or discrimination, or it could be something that happens to an entire community of people. Yeah, exactly. You know, I, you know, I share a little bit of, uh, about this, but um, in, in some of my LinkedIn posts, but I was actually about a mile away from the El Paso shooting that occurred. You know, I think it was something like 26 individuals were, were killed that's an example of like uh, really a community trauma that, that people experience. And it, it, El Paso, if you know that place is such a, it's like the biggest small town in the world. I mean, it, really people are really connected. Um, so, you know, that's something I think that will, you know, take a few years Absolutely. for the community to get over. Um, but you know, one of the things I do like about that town is that people do connect with each other. There, there are a lot of, um, uh, there's just a big sense of community and, and pride. And I think that that's something that is definitely going to help. 
Yeah. You know, one thing I've learned through this work is that no matter how aware you try to be of trauma that might happen, um, if we watch the news, if we pay attention to politics, right, there's still traumas that happen in communities that we might not know about if we're not a member or a part of that community or that neighborhood. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. Really, the thing that flashes to my mind was one of my first trauma-informed trainings is when I was doing work around the sanctuary model. Mm. And someone had talked about, um, I think it was uh, an event that happened in um, sort of Eastern Oregon with the Rasnishis. Yes, right, right. And uh, one thing she said is that you'll, you'll, you won't find any salad bars in our area. And it it sort of like really blew blew me away. I was like, well, why not? Because the salad bars are where uh, people had been poisoned Mm -hmm. during this time. And so if you weren't a member of that community, if you weren't there during that time, you would maybe just think it's odd. There's no salad bars, but there's really that. um, And I don't know what it's like now. I mean, it could be back, but I think there's these little things that can happen. And that's probably more visible than, than other things. Mm-hmm. You mentioned the sanctuary model. Um, I'll put a link to the sanctuary model in the in the show notes. But can you would you mind describing briefly what that means or what that is for people who might not be aware? Yeah, the sanctuary model was a model that was developed by uh, Sandy Bloom, and it it had some pillars that were really um, centered around um, a community experience and really, um, you know. F- finding ways to really be in community differently. And, and um, you know, there were protocols and, and ways to, um, to communicate that. There were check-ins. Uh, and it was really like, how do we, how do we use this, this um, the community that we're in to really bolster each other? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I'm familiar as well with the self-healing model of communities um, by Laura Porter. And she really talks about how communities inherently have the ability to heal themselves when we listen and when we listen to their health educators and um, elders that are in those communities that have really important lived experiences. Um, so On this podcast, we talk about how trauma can present in the field of medicine, um, sometimes overtly, sometimes subtly. Um, And one of your areas of specialty is not just trauma-informed work, but how that intersects with health equity. Can you, first of all, define for us what what is health equity? Well, I'll tell you, to me, when I think of health equity, I think first of an acknowledgement that there are inequities and that these inequities exist primarily due to biases in our society and in our systems. And it's really aiming to ensure that every person has the opportunities and resources necessary to fulfill their full health potential. And that's really about us as people working in these systems really sharing um, and redistributing our power and resources to those that are most impacted by health inequities and uh, recognizing um, sort of historical and contemporary injustices, rectifying them, reconciling them when we can. Okay. So 
again, for people who might not be familiar, let's break this down a little bit. What would be an example of an inherent bias in a health system that would create inequity? Well, um, to make it even a little bit easier, yeah. let me uh, go to a school system. Okay, great. And uh, during, during our trauma-informed pilot, we saw a 40% decline in disciplinary referrals, so kids that were sent to the office. And um, 40. when we looked 40, a little... Four zero. I want everybody to hear that. Four zero, right? Yeah, thank you. Yeah, 40% decline. And I was walking in the hall one day, and uh, I was talking to one of our female students, and he said, we were talking about that. And she said, you know, that's tr- that may be true, but I never get asked for my hall pass when I'm walking through the hallway. Mm-hmm. And so when I looked a little deeper, the disparities, you know, even though everybody's disciplinary referrals went down, the disparities didn't change. There were mostly black and brown kids that were sent to the office. And this this kind of led me to really kind of question why that was. And, uh, you know, and that occurs in, in many different places in healthcare settings. The really the, the biases that we hold that we don't know that we hold. There's something that tells us, hey, let's, let's ask for this uh, black or brown kids pass and, you know, probably a male. I don't have to ask this, uh, you know, white female student for their pass because they're probably Okay, so so those little biases that that cause this these inequities, not just in school, but in healthcare as well. Well, and I think about things in healthcare, like um, we know that there's a higher rate of mortality amongst Black women who are pregnant, for instance, or even some of the biases that may be present in terms of access to healthcare. So then we start to think about things like intersections of equity and historical traumas, right? when groups of people may have felt like the healthcare system was not really set up to serve them, to help them. Yeah. It, it's interesting that when black women get care by other black doctors, those actually at those, those statistics actually um, get better yeah. and they actually do better. Mm-hmm. But I, I'll tell you, it is tied, you know, to our society as, as well. There's a great uh, 15 minute video called If Cells Could Talk. Ah, and yes. this is done by Dr. Kenjis Watson. Mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, really what we think about when we think of protective factors, we think of education. If you go to college, get a master's degree, bachelor's degree, whatever, that that is actually a, a good indicator of how healthy you'll be. And what he did is he studied black men at uh, the University of California at Los Angeles, UCLA. And what he found was that one third of these black men had telomeres that were the same size as women that were twice their age that had who had twice their age and had survived breast cancer. So for those that don't know, telomeres is sort of the end caps of our cells. And the longer they are, the healthier they are. And as we you know take trips around the sun, they shorten as we get older. And so it was really quite astonishing that a third of these men really had um, shortened telomeres. 
And so he to break it down, right? Because Alfonso and I both, neither of us are physicians, but this is a really important thing for people to know. And I think in lay terms, what we can say is we want long telomeres, right? And we want to be able to look at our telomeres and go, ah, that can act that that equates to life expectancy or kind of, as you were saying, trips around the sun, right? Um, And when in this particular study, when they were looking at black men, they had the same length of telomeres as women twice their age who had survived breast cancer. What does that mean on a practical level about that, about that man? And I know we're generalizing to population health, but what, what would that mean? So, so um, to me, it means that a third of these men really weren't well yeah. and they were brilliant. Mm-hmm. They were at UCLA and the, you know, those are really like, you know, protective factors, but for them, for some reason it, it hadn't been. And so, you know, Dr. Ken just asked them all a question. He said, have you experienced microaggressions? And for those that don't know, microaggressions are sort of um, these daily um, invalidations of you because of the color of your skin, your culture, your ethnicity, your social status. And so um, about half of the men said, yes, I experienced microaggressions. And the other half said, I don't experience microaggressions. And so what he thought was that those that experienced microaggressions would have the shortest unhealthy telomeres, and those that hadn't would have longer ones. And what he found was the reverse, Mm. that actually those that experienced microaggressions and could talk about it actually had longer telomeres. And he was trying to figure this out. And what, what he came up with was, well, you know, Understanding what a microaggression is, understanding what biases are, helps you navigate them. And that is a protective factor. But if you don't even know what they are, or you don't believe you even have permission to to acknowledge that things are unfair and biased, that's really what's, what's unhealthy. And it made me, you know, personally, I was working in a school district, but, you know, I can apply this as a clinician as well. And I think it goes to true with any trauma survivor. We have to acknowledge their experience. Mm -hmm. And if someone says I've experienced racism or microaggressions, or I've experienced, you know, child abuse or whatever it is, it's really important for us to understand their perspective and to believe them. Yes. And it goes back to what you said before, the effect an event has on that particular individual. It's their experience, not your interpretation of that experience. Absolutely. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll link up to some resources for folks in the, in the show notes around microaggressions too, because I think sometimes people who don't understand, they, they hear micro and they think small. Yes. Um, micro doesn't mean small. It means those daily insults that occur to someone because of their race, their gender, their ethnicity, their, um, you know, ableism, their socioeconomic background, et cetera. It's, it's, it's these recurring stressors. Yeah. And, and I think one of the things that we could do is when we, you know, to kind of see if we're putting out microaggressions is just to check in with your body. Mm. How are you feeling in a certain situation? If you're feeling uncomfortable, there's probably something going on there and there may be a, a microaggression that you may not even know that you're putting out. Mm-hmm. But one, one thing I, I, I want to say, because I think this is really important, is what Dr. Kent just found is that bringing people together to have, you know, sort of these healing circles, time to talk, that actually 
can reverse the impact of trauma and your telomeres can actually grow back. So that, that was something that they found uh, in particular with the person in, in the video that, you know, actually their telomeres stopped shortening and actually they started healing. And that, that is really, really powerful. And and I know that that's where you and I like connect and have so much synergy, right? Because I, I know we both believe we want to acknowledge trauma and we want to give people hope about healing. And so this idea that you could bring together a group of people who could understand those biases more, talk through them, work through them, actually will begin to heal neurobiologically within your body yeah. so that you could live. That's incredible. And, and you know, it, at least from my experience, it's not just healing for the person on the receiving end of microaggressions, you know, it's healing for us too. Right. Yeah. So going back to this idea about health equity and how it may present subtly or overtly, what about for the person on the receiving end, Alfonso? What about the person who is black or brown or has a disability or identifies as LGBTQ plus and they're feeling that feeling, like you said, in their body, like, this doesn't feel right. I, I, I wish I could say more to my provider or advocate, or I don't understand what, what's, what, what would you say to that person? Um, I would say, trust your instincts, <laughs> you know, trust yourself, realize you're not alone, reach out to other people that, that have had those experiences and, and really, um, um, you know, give yourself permission to feel those feelings. A, a lot of times, it's it's uncomfortable. Speaking as a, as a man of color, I, I've been in situations that haven't been uncomfortable, and I have told myself, you know, that you're just making that up. That isn't really true. That's not what they meant. But allowing yourself really to to just think that it might be, and and that in and of itself can be somewhat depressing when you realize, oh yeah, there, there are biases in the world, and there's biases against me. But I think you know, connecting with other people, connecting with professionals that share your experience, your identity can, can also be helpful. Yeah. I love what you just said about um, black moms who were seeing black physicians um, did better in their care, Um, probably for advocacy, for affinity. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, you you know, all of us, even if we don't share the identity as the person that we're working with can still be culturally responsive. We can still be that safe person to say, yes, I hear you. Yes, you're right. I believe you. I believe that that's been your experience. And, and um, I'm committed to, to being, um, you know, responsive. Yeah. Culturally responsive to believe someone, to believe their experience. That's, that's huge, right? Yeah. And, and to be open to, you know, you know, their own health beliefs. You know, what, you know, really our systems are really built on Eurocentric models. And I, you know, I'll tell you another story that I had when I was working in a a school district that I was working at uh, a school for uh, Tana Otham um, tribal members. And that's, if you don't know, the, the Otham are the second largest tribe in the United States. And this woman said, you know, in the 50s, we would have this system on on the reservation where if there was a car accident, you know, we try to have them work it out. Mm -hmm. And the federal government said, no, 
there has to be a winner and a loser. Someone has to be at blame for the accident. Interesting. And and this was like in, in the 90s, 2000s. And then she said, later on, when we switched everything to there's a winner and a loser, someone to blame for it, they said, hey, uh, why don't you do mediation? Why don't you see if they can work it out? Mm-hmm. And they're like, wow, that's what we tried to do 30 years ago, but you didn't let us. So <laughs> I think like, you know, there's a lot of value in really listening to the cultural wisdom and traditions yeah. that people have held. And I think that's part of being um, culturally responsive is really um, being able to lean into how other people's people experience health and to uh, really listen and learn as well. So I just want to underscore that it wasn't until the people in power had that idea that yep. then it was acceptable. Yep, exactly. Yeah, that's that's uh, chilling to me. Um, how how does what might be some other examples of health inequities or how we could respond to it? Like I think about. Um, you know, entire groups of people who may have been mistreated in medical systems. Um, And then they come into one person, for instance, comes into an office and they, they might seem irritable with the front office staff, or they might uh, be labeled as non-compliant in their behavior. Um, How do you read through that as someone who's trauma-informed? Yeah. You know, I see, uh, cultural responsiveness sort of in the same light as trauma informed, Mm -hmm. you know, that when somebody comes in the front door, there's a cultural responsiveness or a responsive approach. When they go up to the the front office and they check themselves in, there's a cultural responsiveness approach. Um, And it's this, you know, very synonymous with, with being trauma informed you know, the the one thing I'll say about this trauma-informed movement is it's really rooted in understanding our neurobiology. Right, right. And that is just, I mean, it's the same brain, it's the same functioning when you're doing, um, you know, health equity as well. Like really listen in to, to your own body as a practitioner. And if you're feeling uncomfortable, then, you you know, check it out. Why is that? Is there a bias there? Is there something, you know, you can speak to your, you know, colleagues, get support from your supervisor to try to sort of unpack what it is uh, that that you're experiencing. Mm -hmm. Are there other ways that you would, that you educate others on how this shows up? Like, um, you know, if you were talking to the professionals, how might this show up? Yeah, so... um, I'll take a little bit of a, of a detour to talk a, a little bit about this iceberg model that I think is super important. Oh, great. Yeah. When we think of these, uh, think of, of health inequity like an iceberg. And up at the top, we have these really inequitable outcomes. And just above the surface of the water, we have actions that we take. And what, a lot of times what we try to do is we try to take different actions. Well, I'm going to change this policy or I'm going to change this practice. Mm-hmm. But really it's what's underneath the water, you know, the deepest part of the iceberg where uh, the change needs to occur. So it's in the conversations that we're having, but even below that, it's, it's really in the perceptions and beliefs that we, that we have, that we have to unpack. And it's best to do that collectively. It's best to come together in groups with other, um, with other staff, with other pediatricians or other doctors, and really talk about 
you know, you know, let's look at our outcomes. What are what are some of the biases that may be present? Mm-hmm. And even more powerful than that is to listen to the people that are receiving our services. You know, they be customer surveys, they be qualitative assessments, and the little things that people kind of drop by from time to time. You know, the little comments that that they make that could provide a wealth of information about what your system feels like to a person of color or a member of the LGBTQ IA2S plus community. Um, those little things can be really helpful. So w- when I think of like, what do we want to do? We, we want to listen um, to our, um, our patients or our clients um, and really to learn and heal our, to learn, listen and learn and really to kind of heal ourselves because there are, that's really what healing is about. It's about changing these biases, changes, changing the, the, the um, misperceptions that we have and really uh, reflecting, responding back to them, you, you know, really understanding, is this, is this what I heard? Are you feeling uncomfortable because of this? Is this, is this something that you're experiencing? Um, wow. I, I, I don't want that to happen. I'd love to, I, I'd love to do things differently. So those are all little little things that, that we can do. Okay. So I'm hearing some really, really great nuggets from Alfonso that I want y'all to listen to. One, um, meet together as a group, right? As a, whether you're a clinic or a healthcare organization or meet together and look at data. It might be quantitative data, but often it sounds like it's in that qualitative data, these small little encounters where someone might be sharing with you an experience that they had and be willing to be open to it and think about like, oh gosh, um, maybe there was a bias present there, or maybe I hadn't thought about the patient in this way and be willing to just kind of crack it open and sit with it. Yeah. I'll, t- I'll tell you one thing that somebody told me that was a cool little nugget was they were Latino and they said, uh, Latinos don't, don't value healthcare or no, they said, uh, Latinos don't value mental health. Mm-hmm. And so you can hear that and you could think, oh, well, they don't care. Or you can say, or you can listen and really hear, oh, our behavioral health doesn't provide meaning or value to this community. So it's not like they don't they don't value mental health. It's that there's this mis- mismatch. And yeah. so how can I learn what mental health means to this person, what wellness means, and how can I do a better job of connecting and making it align with that? So I love this example. Let's use that example of this particular person who may have given that feedback, right? And now you want to circle back as a provider or as a clinic um, to go back to that person, Alfonso, and expect them to be kind of an educator, or do you go to a professional for some more information? What what would you advise someone who is looking for, like, how how do we repair and learn? I I think it's good to have uh, connections with culturally specific providers, and, and, um, you know, and, you know, honestly, if, if the services that you're providing, you feel like aren't helpful and potentially harmful, then if you have relationships with a culturally specific provider, that might be a good referral, mm-hmm. but, but also you can, you know, reach out to them. You can reach out, you can do some research. And I think it's, it's actually perfectly okay to say, um, Hey, when you said that comment, it just made me think that, um, you know, my approach wasn't working, mm-hmm. you know, t- tell me about, you know, what tends to work with you or, you know, how do you view uh, wellness? You know, what does wellness mean to you? What what would an ideal scene be 
how can I, uh, how can I help me meet what, what is important to you? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, it's, it's so important to remember I've yet to meet someone regardless of their background, who doesn't want to be well, who doesn't want their kids to be healthy and happy and contributing individuals. And yet there's a lot of systems that get in the way of that. Yeah. And I just really appreciated what you just said, because I think part of health equity is having that belief Mm-hmm. That everyone is committed to wellness. Mm-hmm. Everyone wants their children to be well. There's not one parent that doesn't want their children to be well. And even though they may be suffering with addiction or other sort of uh, ailments, it doesn't mean that they don't want um, their children to be well or they don't want to be well themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, I always kind of ask this question like, okay, if I'm if I'm meeting with this patient or this client and it seems like there's a barrier, right, to their wellness, what, what I might identify as health or wellness, right, which, which is my own bias, right, because I have my own definition of what that might mean, or the time frame it should happen in, or how it would look. Um, if I perceive a barrier, it is so important to just kind of check myself and go, okay, um, maybe I'm the barrier. Yes. Maybe Maybe the system is the barrier. Maybe language is the barrier because I have to believe that this person, family, individual, whoever it is sitting in front of me wants a a prosperous, healthy life. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And and I think like holding that hope that things can be better for this person. I think that's also, I think sometimes we give up and think, oh, there's nothing I can do for this person. And that's really maybe even an element of trauma speaking, mm-hmm. but I, I think holding that vision and holding that hope is important. I do have actually another suggestion when it comes to health equity, if I can share it. And th- this might not be um, something that we always remember, but humanizing our systems. What I find is when we're overworked and when we're stressed, the biases really live in the in the lower parts of the brain, uh, in the brainstem. And if we don't have environments where we can be humanized, where we can feel you know creative, that that it, it's really hard to do any kind of equity work if we ourselves are are, are not taking care of, of ourselves and each other. Mm-hmm. This to me is so critically important, Alfonso. So if if I'm a healthcare provider or an organization or a physician who's listening to this. And I think, well, how's this good for me, right? Like, why do I need to be learning more about this, committing to work that is equitable for my patients? You just named it, right? That if, if we're not able to humanize our systems, it's going to affect the patient. It's going to affect you as a provider. Um, I mean, that's, that seems like everything to me. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. Wow. Okay. Um, Let me see. Well, let me ask you something related. Um, Why why is this work important to you? And and why should it be important to other providers? Yeah, you know, um, primarily, it's because we all need each other. You know, we really need each other to be well. And if you're not well, it's hard for me to be as well as I can be. And, you know, we all encounter each other out in the streets, you know, 
at the park, online, unfortunately more and more online than out, out <laughs> in public. But, you know, we, you know, our kids, you know, play together. We, we want everybody to be well. And the the one thing I've, I've sort of have found or believed to be true is that, you know, those that aren't, are the most impacted by health inequities, when they do better, all of us do better. All of us do well. One thing we found with the trauma-informed pilot at Tigard High School is, is sort of this, uh, you know, closing of the gap, but everybody got better. Yes. We had a 7% increase for everyone. Um, you know, black and brown kids did better. Uh, kids with this, uh, with student, um, I'm sorry, special education needs, mm-hmm. they did better. White kids did better. Everybody got better. Wow. And so I think like the more that we um, really lean into health equity, I, I just think it, it makes everyone healthier. Mm-hmm. I, I I have to, I'm going to admit those of you that are listening via audio and not watching the video, I'm, I'm a little tearful as I hear Alfonso say this, right? But I really am so passionate that people know this. And I'm just going to repeat what you said, your words, not mine. If I'm not well, you're not well. And if you're not well, our community's not well. And when we all are focused on health equity, everybody's going to get better. Everybody's going to get better. Um, Oh my gosh. Um, Which answers my other question, which is why should we be talking about this more? I mean, we should just clearly be talking about this more. Um, Do you have any um, practical, um, like, uh, comments or questions that in a way that you talk or ask about health equity in healthcare settings that you found to be really helpful? Like, how do you open those discussions? So, um, uh, you know, in terms of like, uh, um, working with the patient or working with colleagues or or any of that? That's a great question. Um, so first with colleagues, right? Well, one thing I, I like to do is there's a, a protocol that I like to use. It's called the first thought, second thought protocol. I love this. Good. And the first thought, you can just assume that the first thing you think about has bias in it. Mm-hmm. There's probably some prejudice. There's there's something about it. Give but us an still, example. Give us an example. Okay. Um, I might say, um, you know, if I'm working with... Um, uh, let, let's say I'm working with somebody that's experienced some trauma. Mm-hmm. My first thought may be it's the parent's fault. Mm-hmm. And so that's just a bias that I have, but there's, you know, a million biases that we have when we're talking, but if you can get everybody just to say, oh, okay, let's just all agree that our first thoughts are biased and have everybody share what they're thinking. Yeah. Then yeah. we can move to a second thought. Because then we hear what everybody else is saying. And even though there's biases in there, there are probably some things that are going to different because everyone's had a different perspective um, or a different experience in life. And especially the more diverse or inclusive that group is, you're going to be able to get to a second thought of of where you want to strive to be. So if you say, hey, uh, we noticed that uh, we don't g- get a lot of people of color in our clinic. I wonder why that is. Mm-hmm. And share your first thoughts. Great. They don't care. They're in a group. They're not yeah. interested in their health. Um, you know, 
whatever their, their first thought is, right? Whatever the first thought is, but as, as people, you know, begin to share, especially if you have a diverse group, well, maybe we aren't, um, we aren't providing the type of service that they need. Maybe they're scared. Yeah. Maybe. Language barrier. Maybe I'm scared and they can feel that mm-hmm. whatever those, those are, but they'll get you to, to, to sort of second thoughts. Yeah. Um, so I, we call it the first thought, second thought protocol. And I, and honestly, we're always moving to like third thoughts, fourth yeah. thoughts. Um, that works. And the thing is, it really normalizes collective thinking versus individual thinking. Because if we're left to try to solve the problem on our own, it's really hard. But well, if we can elicit the support. Yeah, right. To be in groups. Yeah. Let me, let me give listeners. Um, so I actually just did Alfonso's exercise because uh, I love first thought, second thought in a training I did last week with a really big pediatric group. Um, and what I said to them was in their little in their team huddle, describe for me, uh, quote, difficult patient behavior. And man, the chat box just lit up, right? What is difficult patient behavior? Not showing up on time, not making eye contact, uh, refusing medication, missing appointments, um, angry patients, patients who raise their voices at you. Um, This whole slew of, you know, their first thought was, this is my description of difficult patient behavior. And then we talked about what it means to be a trauma-aware clinic, what it means to have cultural humility when it comes to thinking about people's behavior. Um, And I said, now let's go back to our difficult patients. (laughs) What might be another reason? Just look at the behaviors that were listed that they may be acting that way. And all of a sudden I saw Alfonso, uh, people tear up, people turn their cameras off on zoom. Uh, People begin to light up the chat box again. Like, Maybe they didn't feel heard. Maybe they didn't understand the medical jargon you were using. Um, Maybe they had just come from a really difficult experience earlier. And you saw so much compassion in the second round. It was incredible. So for those of you listening, use Alfonso's uh, protocol. First, First question, second question, or first round, second round. It really elicits beautiful conversations. Yeah. And, you know, I have to say, I, I got that from uh, Zinnia uh, Un from the Tiger Tualatin School District. So I wanted to, to credit her All for that. Zinnia. Yes. That that uh, process. Um, I think, you know, and the way that you talked about it is like you have this first thoughts, let's get them out on the table. Then let's think, let's have a sort of a presentation or let's provide some information and then you go to the second thought. It really like gets people um, gets people moving and thinking in a different in a different way, which is super important. I love that. Um, I know we're coming to the close of our time right now, so I have just a few rapid fire questions. Are you ready? Okay. Okay. <laughs> um, what is one thing you think people get wrong about trauma informed work? One thing they get wrong, um, uh, you know, honestly, sometimes what I hear is is they uh, don't broaden trauma to include things like microaggression, racial trauma. Um, I think that's something that uh, we're doing better at, but initially we we sort of didn't include and got wrong. Yeah, yeah, agree. Um, so. If you had to go back, you've you've done training in it. You've worked in so many different 
areas and arenas and backgrounds. If you could go back to young Alfonso, um, who was just starting out in this work, what would you say to him? You know, it's funny when you said young Alfonso, I pictured myself in in like the third grade. (laughs) And it was like, you know, and one of the things I would have told him or would have would have explored with him was regulation, Mm -hmm. self-regulation, self-love, self-compassion. I think those are the things. And maybe, you know, starting out in this this work, I it can be really challenging. So I think probably the same thing, self-regulation, self-compassion. And, uh, you know, permission to explore. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I I hope everybody heard that. We can all do better, right? Self-love, self-regulation, self-compassion. Okay. So um, two more questions. Um, In healthcare, um, you mentioned it before. It's often a a Eurocentric model um, that comes up. And I think people feel like those in healthcare are like the utmost professionals. They never make mistakes, right? Um, they have to just be consummate, like stoic beings. What um, for you? What's one kind of a perfectly imperfect thing about you um, that you wouldn't mind sharing? Like something that makes you just a, a messy human being, like the rest of us. <laughs> a messy human being. Um, you know, I'm a. I'm a and maybe you've noticed this about me, <laughs> but I'm a little quirky, you know, there are th- things that probably, I, you know, I, sh- I shouldn't ask, but there's this little kid in me that just wants to know. <laughs> you know? So the uh, it's the third grader in you. you it's the know. third grader. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I'm just a, a little quirky at, mm-hmm. at times, but I think, you know, over the years, and maybe this is something I would Tell that you just learn to kind of embrace your your quirkiness as much as you can. Oh, I love that. I love that. Um, okay, last question. Um, it's eleven o'clock at night, and you have a food craving. What do you reach for? Uh, no longer pistachios. I had some pistachios last night, and <laughs> had a hard time sleeping after that. My food craving, you know, believe it or not, this part of my quirkiness. And it, you know, it ties into the third grade because it was in the third grade when I first tried Doritos in a class party okay. and I've been hooked ever since. So 11, 11 p.m. I crave Doritos. Uh, okay. Cool Ranch or Nacho? You know, the regular Nacho, not even the spicy. <laughs> I, I just, I love Doritos. I don't know what it is. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, if people want to learn more about, about your work, um, what's the best way to reach you? Uh, they can reach me at traumainformedconsulting at gmail.com. Awesome. And they can also reach out to my website, which is Alfonso Ramirez Jr. Jr. Um, com. Perfect. We will put that in the show notes for everyone. Um, but let me just take a minute to say thank you from the bottom of my heart. Um, I have loved working with you and getting to know you over the years. You're your is always in the right place, Alfonso. And you're an inspiration to people that work with you and know you. And I think in order to do this work, it has to be heart-centered work. And you're such a beautiful model of a human being doing this work. So thank you for joining me. Yeah, thank you, Amy. And I feel the same way about you. I've just really appreciated getting to know you and, and you know, um, all, all the opportunities we've had to collaborate and work together. Me too. Thank you. Thank you.
Well, that's it, friends. If you like what you're hearing in this space, I invite you to join us in the Provider Lounge, a learning collaborative to build resilience. It's an incredible group of physicians who meet monthly, get CME, and lean into conversations about trauma, resilience, and other tough topics. This is the most important medicine. Keep listening to other people's stories and let them transform you. And keep sharing your own, because your humanity will heal others. We'll talk soon.